Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. And I'm Ben Stevens. Welcome to this special Science Town series on personalized medicine. Cheap and rapid genetic sequencing, big data, supercomputing, and more is opening up new possibilities for medicine at the individual level. As we enter a new decade, we wanted to sit with some of the world's leading experts on personalized medicine to find out where the science is headed and what that means for you. Ajay Royeru is an IBM Fellow and Vice President for Healthcare and Life Sciences. We spoke with him about data, AI and personalised medicine during the 2020 Winter Enrichment Programme, an annual festival at KAUS that brings together scientists, innovators and artists to explore topics of global relevance. Enjoy! So why does IBM have a healthcare and life sciences research arm when many people might expect this type of research to take place in universities, perhaps using IBM products? Well, good question, Ben. IBM is a technology company. So my colleagues in IBM invent and create new technology, whether it is for cloud computing or artificial intelligence or quantum computing. But in itself, that technology doesn't do anything unless you actually bring it to application in specific industries. Mm -hmm. So healthcare and life sciences is actually a fairly large industry. Yeah. If you look at you know GDP of various nations, on the order of 20-30% of the spend in the GDP is towards caring for people and keeping them alive. So it's a big piece of our economy. Mm. So applying technology to actually make gains in efficiency, improve outcomes in healthcare and life sciences is really the role of technology. So mm. our research in that space is actually to understand what are the unmet needs, how do you solve some of these very, very difficult issues with innovations and advances in technology. That's the mission for our research team. Great. And um, you, you've got a background at um, IBM. Previously, you were director of the Computational Biology Center. So what is computational biology? So biology, as we all know, is studying living organisms. But in the history of biology as a science, that study was somewhat hard. All you could do was cut open the frog and see what's inside. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a manual and very descriptive way of examining living systems. But with the advent of a variety of technologies, including genomics and all forms of omics, biology has begun to be transformed into an information science. Mm. Okay, It's no longer what is it made up of. We are actually able to ask what all does it contain Omics is the study of all. Okay. So not one gene at a time, the entire genome. Not one organism at a time, the entire microbiome. Right. right? So yeah. the ohm actually is all of it. Mm -hmm. That's one example of how the scale of data and the questions you can ask are actually just expansive in scope. Computational biology is where biology meets computation. 
computation, what can it do? Like we have done in other fields of science, like physics, for example, we've represented the phenomenon that we are studying into a theoretical understanding. Mm -hmm. That theoretical understanding is then implemented into a computational model. And now you compute on that model to predict what to expect. Right. So if the basic you know, pillars of science are experiment theory and computation. Computation is basically the embodiment of your understanding into a computed model. Mm -hmm. So these three pillars actually make science possible. Computational biology is bringing that sort of rigor of computational modeling and analysis of data to biology. And that's new, that's in our lifetimes that has begun to occur, right? Mm -hmm. You go a generation ago, that wasn't the case. No. Right. And um, what, what led you into this area um, in the first place? So I'm trained actually in uh, my undergraduate and graduate studies in human biology, and uh, molecular biology and structural biology. That is, you know, studying the structures of uh, biomolecules like proteins and nucleic acids, et cetera. So that's representing actually the non-biological phenomenon into forms of data, forms of, uh, in the case of protein structures, for example, three-dimensional models of protein structures, et cetera, where it's computationally modeled. Mm. So I'm attracted actually to this interdisciplinary nature of study. You know, I'm trained in formal biology, mm. but I find that inadequate. Right. Be because the level of abstraction and the scale with which you can represent and compute in just this traditional bench biology where you do experiments, all that abstraction is happening in your head. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I find that limiting. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I actually want to be able to take information that cannot be stuffed into my head. It is so much bigger than what I can contain in my head. So take omics as an example, the mm -hmm. knowledge of the entire genome. It's impossible to actually have all that detail in your own head. But it is possible to represent that in many uh, abstractions, many layers of abstraction, into formal ways in which you capture that information in, computed, uh, in, in data representation and computation, and then compute with that information. Mm. So I'm attracted to the field of computational biology because it allows us to actually take the understanding and scale quickly with it, right? Way more than human capacity allows us to do. So it's that marriage between the, 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 the essence of biology, which is fascinating and is full of discoveries and it is, you know, a beautiful science. And then the scale that you can achieve with formal representations in computer systems and, and data representations and modeling when you put those two together, we get to a scale of science that is just beautifully bigger. And um, you're going to be talking at uh, the Winter Enrichment Programme about data, AI, and personalized insights. And that's drawing on things like um, medical records and perhaps medical insurance claims. How do you do that? So think of actually the information that is... Uh, I would say, gained from us or shed from us in every clinical encounter. You know, recall the last time you were visiting a doctor. Mm. You got poked and prodded, and something was learned from you, and now the debris of that learning is stuck in some electronic medical record somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like to think that there has to be more merit and value in the data that was created from that encounter than just the one or two decisions that were made in that clinical visit, right? So essentially, 
increase the half-life yeah. of, of the value of the data, mm -hmm. right? And through digitization and electronic medical records, et cetera, in, it is possible to touch that data again, even when you're not in the clinic. Right. Right. <clears throat> so that does increase the half-life. So what are the insights we can learn from it? So take an example of a chronic progressive condition. So here in Saudi Arabia, one of the diseases that is that has high prevalence is type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Affects a large fraction of the population. It's not a disease that is you don't have it and then you have it, right? It's not a binary condition. It actually is a progressive condition. So mm -hmm. you have it and then it, you know the severity of the disease increases and then complications arise and then complications have to be managed. So there's like a progression that occurs yeah. in this disease. So if you have the longitudinal record of the individual from before they had the disease through all the stages of the disease, now you, and you put that together for thousands or millions of such individuals together, from that you can now begin to understand the granularity and the staging. What, how does one stage lead to another? In which subtypes of individuals? Mm -hmm. Some stage is skipped yeah. or some stage is compressed. So not every individual actually progresses in the disease at the same rate and pace. Mm -hmm because of the other variables that are coincident in that individual, whether it is lifestyle, whether it is you know, uh, risk factors for other conditions, et cetera. So when you have a large enough cohort at the population scale, you can begin to actually capture some of these nuances and now bring those insights back to the individual. So I can ask, Ben, you know, the, your status is the following. What are the 300 other people for whom the status looks exactly like yours. Mm. And what was their progression like, right? So I can personalize those insights to you by learning from the records and then bringing that insight to you. So that's an example of how the AI techniques get applied to large data, whether it's from records or from claims, and bring those insights so that you can make meaningful decisions in the clinic to impact the outcomes that have to be achieved for you as an individual. Science Town, brought to you by Kaust. And by drawing on data like that, sensitive personal data, um, how do you mitigate privacy concerns? So this is about the individual, right? In fact, uh, your uh, health records are amongst the most personal bit of information. Oftentimes, the sensitivity of that information is so acute that even some family members may not have full knowledge of it, right? Mm. So we really have to treat that with that degree of, uh, of uh, care. Uh, first thing is consent. Yeah, Consent is actually a very important aspect because this is intensely personal. It's not information that once I know can be forgotten about you. No. So my right to know or my right to analyze it really derives from a consent that you give me on can I do something with it, right? So any act of collecting that information must be done with consent. So the ethics of actually obtaining and uh, operating on this data draws from consent. Mm -hmm. And we have to be very rigorous about it in, yeah. in every aspect of the, of the study, every aspect of the research you do. You know, the boundaries of what you can and cannot do are to begin with defined by consent, then defined by what is science allowing me to do, mm -hmm. not the other way around. Even right. if science allows you to do, if the ethics don't allow you to do, you should not step into that, right? That's kind of the 
the, the way to proceed. So that's one. Mm-hmm. But even with consent, there is additional degree of care that you have to exercise to make sure that concerns are, are addressed. So an important aspect in uh, electronic medical records and claims is you really need to know the information that is contained in the record, but you could actually ignore who the individual actually is. Yeah. You don't need to know that it was Ben. Mm. It is a person. Could be any person, but that person has the following condition, has progressed in this following manner. That's all you need to know. So that concept is called de-identification, okay. where you strip actually strict identifiers, like name or you know national identification number, etc. Mm. You remove all those, okay. because those don't really have a bearing on the disease condition. Mm-hmm. You can actually remove, and there are different technology means of, of achieving de-identification. Some that are strictly de-identified, some that are pseudo-anonymized so that you can actually re-identify if you need to go back to the individual with some insights, et cetera. So there are technologies that allow you to do that. But the de-identification is sort of the the basic tenet that you have to use here to go from truly identified your electronic medical record in the hospital to the piece of data that is now going to be used to do the insights. And it's de-identification that is sort of a filter that that is being used to make sure that we are addressing privacy concerns. And then Oftentimes, the science will give you some insights that uh, with consent, you may actually have the ability to provide that insight back to the individual. And uh, today in the talk, I'll actually show that uh, to be the case in precision oncology. So that means that even though you worked on de-identified data, having obtained this insight, it it pertains to a specific individual, Mm. you now need to actually give that insight in the clinic back to that individual. So... Now you actually have to traverse the de-identification protocol in the opposite direction and use whatever was the technology you had in place for de-identifying. Use the opposite of that to actually achieve uh, re-identification. But re-identification only in the hands of the practitioner, the clinician, for example, who then actually knows this is my patient and this is the insight. And then it's the physician who's actually then providing that insight back to the patient. So that's the care you have to have in in, in going... And learning more from the data. And there's um, data security challenges all the way along that and, and back again, isn't there? Yes. And so there are naive ways of doing it where, uh, you know, you create a data lake where all the data in the data lake is de-identified. Uh, so I would say that's kind of a, a blanket, you know, naive way of doing it. But, you know, now with uh, data encryption and, uh, you know, in particular, uh, you know, new security uh research that my colleagues have done in IBM with technology like homomorphic encryption uh, that allows you to actually do research on the data without being exposed to the primary data. Okay. So the entire data is encrypted. Right. And so you never see the data in a naked uh, form. I see. The entire data is always encrypted Mm -hmm. and you can perform data analysis on the data but the only aspect of the analysis that is seeing the data is through that encryption protocol. Okay. Okay. So the data is never brought to you in the clear. Mm-hmm. It always stays encrypted. So the computer in- sees it, but you don't. Correct. Yeah. And even in the computer, it's within the algorithm. So there's never an instance where the data is actually in the clear. Right. Right. So that's a sort of super sophisticated way. Mm. And in the extreme instances where you know that would be the concern. 
then indeed you could bring that kind of technology to bear. I'm sort of out in the research realm now. This is not really what any clinic is doing today. Uh, but, you know, research is, uh, in, in, uh, in the security research is allowing us to think of what would be forms of such uh, extreme rigor when mm. needed that could be brought to bear. And homomorphic en- encryption is uh, one example of that. Okay, great. And um, another thing that's key to um, IBM's research effort is Watson. Um, what is that and what was your contribution to it? So Watson, in the beginning, was a, a computing system that IBM created to do an extreme form of natural language processing and natural language understanding. Right. So, you know, uh, concepts and questions expressed in natural language, in that case it was English, you know, how could you understand that and actually be able to represent the knowledge and manipulate information to actually then return, in this case, play the game of Jeopardy. Oh, right. Right? That was the, the yeah. genesis of, of Watson, you know, about 11 years ago now. But since then, a lot has happened. And Watson, in reality, is actually the brand that IBM has for all things artificial intelligence. I see. Okay. So when you hear IBM describe, you know, Watson as Watson for health or Watson for genomics, et cetera, it is using the sophistication of artificial intelligence to solve that particular problem. So Watson is no longer one computer system. Watson is essentially all forms of AI implemented available on the cloud, available maybe on-premise, you know. So in different ways, and, and now it's actually available not just on IBM Cloud, it's available on all clouds, mm. right, all public clouds. So Watson is essentially a implementation of artificial intelligence mm-hmm. uh, that you can then use to practice in a variety of disciplines. Okay, and um, did you have a, uh, what sort of uh, interaction have you had with Watson? In many different ways we i personally have contributed to uh, bringing the technology in in watson uh, artificial intelligence to bear on problems in biology and medicine i'll give one example in precision oncology where the issue is really the genomic variations that you see in a tumor biopsy sample uh, which can be vast depending on the stage of the cancer you know some cancers in advanced stages would have enormous number of variations from the patient's own normal genome. And that presents a cognitive challenge. Even a physician, if you throw you know, 10,000 variations at that physician, it's going to be an exercise of rushing to the library mm-hmm. to figure out what each of those variations actually mean, which ones are treatable, how do I, what drugs will act on which variations. So even if that information is actually available in literature, just putting all those pieces together to meaningfully make a decision for the patient is an exercise of huge, uh, uh, you know, it requires a lot of labor. Mm. So we built a Watson-based system called Watson for Genomics that takes as input the genomic variations in the tumor biopsy sample, computes actually through all the available cancer literature and uh, you know mechanisms of action of various drugs, et cetera, and then produces a report that says, for these scored variations that are of uh, uh, sort of a driver nature, as in you know they're primary in this cancer, the following treatment options are possible, and categorizes those treatment options by those that are approved for, to treat specifically that cancer, those that are approved to treat some other cancer, but the underlying genomic variation is common, and therefore there's an expectation that you know, that other treatment might, might be valid here. 
and treatment options that are still in clinical trials that might be relevant, et cetera, right? So it's a categorization of different treatment options at different risk level. Mm-hmm. And it's generated as a report that you can actually browse into and examine on, you know, on a computer or actually take a PDF and discuss with the patient on, okay, these are my treatment options. Which one do you really want to go pursue? So it's assisting the physician, an oncologist in this case, to make the right decision. So think of it as uh, you know providing uh, cognitive assistance mm-hmm. to the oncologist. Given all the time and the ability to go read everything, maybe the oncologist would be able to make such a decision. But obviously they don't have the luxury of such time and the amount of information is exploding. There are more than 6,000 research papers in oncology yeah. that get published every year. So you cannot expect even a top practitioner to be on top of all of that all the time. But that's the power of a computer. Mm-hmm. It can read all that. It doesn't forget any of that. And it can actually bring all that to bear. And it does that in less than a few minutes. So that's really the, the advantage of, of thinking of how you can apply AI in this manner. It actually is assisting oncologists in making good decisions and treating patients. And it's being used in many countries now. And uh, I, I just think uh, as a as a sort of final reflection, um, it's quite a journey, isn't it, to be talking in those terms as a biologist within IBM. That's, that's probably a trajectory you didn't necessarily see yourself going on. So true, Ben. You know, so IBM is a technology company. I'm uh, very grateful for the leadership of the IBM company in the beginning, you know, 20-some years ago, uh, that they began to understand that biology is an information science. And they attracted folks like me, who are card-carrying biologists, to actually come invest our careers in actually making that journey possible. And indeed, that has that has now become a reality, not just in IBM, but the whole field has advanced in that way. So we are part of that change in, in IBM, where we've made technology that meaningful mm-hmm. to emerging industries of this kind. And it actually is a fun journey, because we're not alone in this. We're not trying to do this research by you know, sticking our heads in IBM and saying, okay, we're gonna do it the hard way. Rather, we have the luxury and the ability to actually work with other collaborators outside of IBM, whether that's academic collaborators, that's you know, others in the industry, whether it's pharma, hospitals, et cetera. So we work collaboratively. In fact, many of the research papers we write are co-authored with non-IBM external collaborators. So in that sense, we wear an academic hat. But the output we create scales and becomes actually more uh, readily translated into practice because we're doing it in IBM. So we have the business part of IBM, we have the other units of IBM that can take the fruits of our discoveries and rapidly bring new capabilities and new uh, solution offerings into the market. That's really the reason why I feel excited about working in IBM is it's not just do the research and hope that it somehow makes an impact, but when we do the research, we can actually see it translate and become meaningful to the world. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure talking to you, Ben. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes and Alex Arias. I'm Nicholas Tamil with co-host Ben Stevens. Thanks for listening.
This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.